0: Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Well, would you turn with me this morning where we're starting, started uh, six weeks ago at least, in Hebrews chapter eight and verse six. We came across a word that we all need to understand. We read these verses many times, and we just don't seem to, to get the depths of it. We're studying covenant because it surfaces in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 8, talking about the high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 6, But now He, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator, one who stands between, of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Now we've been looking at what this covenant is covenant relationships, it's a lost language in the 21st century. And so we talked about the identity of the covenant. Today we're continuing in the accountability and covenant. Covenant demands accountability. The first point of our understanding our accountable lifestyles that we have in regards to our covenant relationship to God came as we looked last time at the fact that covenant is a binding relationship and it requires, it requires us to be accountable. When two become one they lose their right to independent living. You say, Wayne, that's not what a covenant is. Ask your wife what a covenant is. Ask her about the vows that you made to her when you entered into covenant with her. You lose your right to independent living and you enter in to the brand newness of life. And we saw this last time. That was our message last time. It's a binding relationship. That was point one that we're gonna look at point two today. No one enters, no one that understands covenant, enters into covenant with a flippant attitude But not only are we accountable because the covenant is a binding relationship, we're accountable because covenant is a costly relationship. For us to be in covenant with God, it cost Him, His Son, to die for us on the cross. It's tragic that we're living in a day when people, many young people, many older, some of them are older in America, do not appreciate the cost of the freedom that we have in this wonderful united states they do not appreciate the blood that was shed on foreign fields they they don't understand the sacrifice that many have made to give us the freedoms that we have therefore they do not feel accountable in the free, that the freedom accountable they don't feel the accountability that the freedom that we have demands it seems to be that this attitude overflows into the church And in Christians today, we have a lot of people who, they look at grace as a right to do as they please instead of grace being the power to do as they should. Instead of walking in God's will, they belligerently stand in God's way. They don't seem to get it. They don't seem to understand that by the cost of how they could even enter this relationship, which, by the way, every time we take the Lord's Supper, it exemplifies that. It illustrates that. What did it cost God for us to have a relationship with Him? We must understand what covenant is. We must understand the accountability that's built into the understanding of this relationship that we have with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So, today we want to look at that. That covenant is a costly relationship. When they would cut covenant, it was a very sobering moment when they entered into that place that they, that covenant would be cut. And they saw that an animal had to be sacrificed. Now this animal was a substitute for themselves. They were dying, but symbolically, but the animal had to be killed. It was the substitute. It was the reflection of what they were going through. This animal was cut from the front all the way to the back and the bloody halves were laid opposite one another forming that bloody path that they would walk in between. The animal represented the death of the persons entering into covenant. Covenant was their dying to an old way of living and entering into a brand new way of life. The slain animal, the slain animal illustrated that sobering death to independent living. It was really representing them. It was, a sacri- it, was a, it was a substitute for them. Each one entering into covenant symbolically by the death of this animal entered into a, a, a newness of life. They had, they had left an old way of living. The bloody path made by the slain animal was the way, it was called the way of death. And it was very sobering, walking in realizing That symbolized what they were about to do. Now this once again pictures the exact way in which God provided a way for you and I to enter into covenant with him through the Lord Jesus. For man to enter into covenant with man, it required only the blood of of an animal, innocent animal. But for man to enter into a covenant relationship with God, It required much more than just the blood of an animal. It had to be the blood of the perfect man, the perfect God-man. An animal would not suffice. And we know from Scripture, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In perfect tense, always had been. It speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, it tells us about Him. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as the, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, as we've studied in Hebrews, came into the world in which he himself had made. And he came for a, one way reason, and that's to die for us on the cross. To provide a way for us to be in covenant with God. He was the perfect representative of mankind so that that door could be opened. So that there would be a a means that we could now, once again, have a relationship with God. Now, in light of covenant, and I know you know these passages, but in light of covenant, in light of understanding covenant. Let me read for you in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. If you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in likeness of men. You see him coming into the world, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. What death? The death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. He came into the world as the perfect lamb to be slain for our sins. John the Baptist, when he first saw him coming towards him, says in John chapter 1 verse 29, behold, and that word behold means stop what you're doing and pay attention to what I'm about to say. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. In John 1 36, he said he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the lamb of God. In Paul writing in first Corinthians says in chapter five, verse seven, clean out the old leaven so that you may be new, a new lump, just, just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Now put your thinking caps on. I want you to think of this and consider this in the light of the covenant relationship. A sacrifice was necessary for anyone to enter in to a covenant with another. They walked in the way of death. It became the way of death. In the verses we just read in John, Philippians, and Corinthians, we've seen several words. Passover. We saw the word lamb. And we saw the word sacrifice. Now, oh, listen. Get the picture. Do you see the parallel of the Lord Jesus and his dying for us to make a way in order that we might enter into covenant with God? Now I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Paul uses this language. This is exactly what he's talking about. This isn't typology that somebody came up with to illustrate a point. This is Paul writing this in Corinthians and takes us all the way back to the Old Testament when the Passover became something that they understood when the Passover became into existence. I want you to see this and how it's been portrayed all the way through scripture. God wants a relationship with man and how God began to set the stage all the way back in the Old Testament. God's people, when we turn to Exodus 12, were found in captivity, bondage. You think about what it was like. When you were lost and bound to sin, you could do nothing else. You could not save or redeem yourself. But they were about to be delivered. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, but I'm going to start at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are, each one, to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb, careful attention now, a lamb for each household. Now, it's very significant, the tenth day of the month. This was the beginning of their religious calendar. But the 10th day of this first month, the Jews called the first month Abib. And then later on after the Babylonian captivity, it was called Nisan. And so this began a brand new calendar for them. They're about to be delivered. There's a brand new day coming. This was the beginning of that religious calendar. It was in the spring of the year they estimate that there were 250,000 households in that Egyptian slave camp. All made up of Hebrews, but it was 250,000 households. Now, if you take a lamb for each household, then you're going to have 250,000 lambs that were just about to be slain as a sacrifice in order that deliverance might occur. In verse 4, Now, if the household is too small for the lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Now, if you had a small household, you go next door and you get in with them. The point is, That the whole lamb was to be eaten and no household was to be left out. The household may be too small for the lamb, but the lamb is not too small for the household. Now, not just any lamb would do. What kind of lamb are they to eat? He says in verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, they would examine these lambs so that there was no spot or wrinkle. No blemish, as they even examined their eyelids. For three days, the lambs would be examined. Now, you have to understand they took them into their house. Excuse me. And when they took them in their house, they fed them. And they took care of them. And they examined them for three days. You know how they were endeared to these lambs for those three days. Then on the 14th day, after examining the lambs for three days, they were to slay the animal that lamb, at twilight, which would have been around three to four o'clock in the afternoon. The Hebrew word simply means between two evenings, and most believe it would be around that late afternoon, three to four o'clock. It says in verse six, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Verse seven, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and on the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat, to eat it. Now you picture the door. They put it on the two doorposts and the lintel, which is above here. And if you look at the door and you look at these two sides, and you look at the top, what do you see? You see a cross. It's, it's the most amazing thing. After slitting the throat of the lamb, they would take the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses. Now, this was in effect a cleansing. Of the house by the blood which consecrated the household, the whole ritual signified to the Jews that the blood of an innocent lamb was shed—a sinless substitute. It had to had to be happened, and it resulted in their being set apart to God. It cost something. It cost the blood of an innocent lamb. Then, in verse eight, they were to eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now, the unleavened bread was bread that had not risen, and leaven is a picture in the New Testament of sin. We read that a while ago. The bitter herbs would cause them to remember the bitter times in Egypt, but the sweetness of the lamb would overtake the bitterness of the herbs. They were to roast the lamb, uh, they were not to boil it or eat it raw like the pagans would do in their culture. Now, you've got to think again where are they? Where are they? They're in a, a, a slave camp. They're in captivity in Egypt, an Egyptian Hebrew slave camp. And 250,000 households were about, a million and a half people were about to roast a lamb each. You talk about what a barbecue on that particular time. Can you imagine the Egyptian guards standing around smelling 250? 1,000 lambs being roasted at the same time. <laughs> I see one, I'm looking at the other ones, was up? Man, they're up to something out there. No, they're not up to anything. God is up to something. Their God is about to do something. Now watch how they were to dress when they ate the lamb. In verse 11 it says, Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, And your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. They were to gird their loins. They would take their garments, pull it up between their legs, tuck it into that belt that we've talked about. They would tuck it in there very tight, and they would put their sandals on their feet, and their staff was in their hand. Why? Because they're ready to move, they're ready to be delivered. Out of captivity to Egypt, they're they're going home. They're heading home. Something was anticipated that was going to take place by the roasting of the lambs, the eating of the lambs, the putting the blood over the door, the getting ready to move. They knew something was about to happen. Judgment was about to fall upon the Egyptians. It says in verse 12, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. But here's the difference. He's going to drop judgment on the Egyptians. But the blood of the Lamb would protect the people. And the Lamb itself would satisfy them. They had to, the Lamb was within them. And the blood would cover them from the judgment of God. Now you need to understand, the Israelites were no better in their sinful nature come, that came from Adam than were the Egyptians. But the difference was God was in covenant with them. And God now would protect them. It says in verse 13, The blood shall be a sign to you for the, on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood will be a sign to you. In other words, when when I pass by, don't take all of your good works and nail them to the door. God's not impressed. Don't take all the honors that you've gotten. Don't take the fact that you've been successful or anything else. Don't nail that to the door. You just make sure the blood is on the door. Because only the blood, only the blood can protect you. The blood will be a sign to you. Judgment could not fall upon their households because it had already fallen upon the Lamb. You have got to get the picture of what he's illustrating for us. An innocent, spotless Lamb without blemish was slain so that they would be delivered from God's judgment. Now, do you get the picture? The Passover feast was thus inaugurated and was to be celebrated for generations following it says in verse 14 now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations you're to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance the lamb satisfied them and its blood protected them now, all of this is a picture of what the Lord Jesus did for us. It's every bit right there. It's not somebody's illustration that they use for a message. Paul used it himself. He wanted to show us how God began to draw a picture for us of how we, he, he would provide a way for us to enter into covenant with him. In the Gospel of, of John 6, verse 51 through 56. Jesus said in a language that only those who were listening would underst- understood, those with a Jewish background, those who understood Passover coming out of Egypt, He said, "You must eat of my flesh, and you must drink of my blood." And to the minds that would be tuned in, he was saying, "I am your Passover lamb." That was an innocent lamb. I'm the perfect lamb. Revelation says in another translation, it says he he was the lamb in heaven before the foundations of the world waiting to come and be slain for you and I. God gave his covenant people a way and he gave them a place to worship him. Now I'm covering a lot of ground. The Old Testament is quite a large book. I'm just skimming the surface, but I want you to see something. The first place that he gave to worship them was called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a temporary, movable tent. Why? Because they were nomadic people and they would move from here and God would direct them over here. But they carried with them this tent. And inside that tent... They had an outer court. They had the the brazen altar, the laver, the holy place that you entered into. And then the holy of holies that only the high priest could enter one time, once a year, behind the veil. Later on, they built a temple that was on the same model. There was a veil. That veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was eight inches thick. They said two oxen could not pull it apart. And what it was, it represented our sinful flesh. And it kept man from ever going behind that. Because behind that veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And that's the picture of the presence of God. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus himself. And that's where the priest, the high priest, once a year could go in and represent all the people. And when he went in, he would sprinkle blood over the mercy seat. And God's fire would be there, his visible presence. And they would meet with God. But that's as close as they could get. The people couldn't go in. The other priests could not go in. Only the high priest. Once a year, the blood that protected him when he entered in, just like the blood protects us. The veil was a picture of man's sin that that separated him from God. Israel as a nation split. You know, people have a tough time getting along. (laughs) I guess this is where we got our roots. Division, 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 division. Divide and conquer. And so they split. Ten of the tribes went north. And they kept the name Israel. who were destroyed by the nation of Assyria. In fact, they never had a good king recorded. The two other uh, tribes to the south, went to the south. That was Judah and Benjamin. And they went back to Jerusalem and back into the land that God had given them. And, And they were called the tribe of Judah. But they went the way of their big sister, idolatry and other things and so god put them into captivity took them out of their land he had already told them in deuteronomy if you don't honor my covenant with you i'll take you out of your land and he did for 70 years they were in captive over in babylon who was later taken on by the medo persians and the greeks and the romans after 70 years they came back to their homeland and when they came back they rebuilt the temple but it was nothing like the first temple. In fact, one of the Old Testament writers says the priest would weep openly when they saw what was built compared to what they had before. Rebellion after rebellion finally caused God to just withdraw His visible presence. The fire in the temple just simply was taken out, and from Malachi to Matthew, there was a period of 500 years of—they call it the period of darkness—400 or 500 years. They call it the period of darkness, but worship went on, if you want to call it worship. They went through the motions in the temple; their feasts were still active. Now they were no longer a nomadic people. And one of the things required for sin was a sacrifice of an animal. And so they did not raise their lambs to be sacrificed anymore, to take to Passover once a year. Others raised them. And they brought their lambs that they had raised without blemish. They brought them. Outside of Jerusalem, they were not allowed to sell inside the city. So they would put these Passover lambs, temple lambs, they would put them outside the walls of the city. Some people say it was in the fields of Boaz. But people went out to the fields to purchase the the Passover lambs. Not like it used to be, but they would go purchase that lamb. And we read in Luke chapter 2. Verses 8 through 11. In the same region there were shepherds staying out in their fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's my opinion from my study, and somebody could argue with me and maybe win. I don't win many arguments, but it's my opinion that these shepherds were the special shepherds who tended the temple lambs. And if I'm right, is that not incredible that the angel came and said, listen, I know you've got the temple lambs that you're going to sell for people to sacrifice at the Passover, but the Lamb, the Lamb of God has come into the world. Your Savior has come into the world. God has come. John, as we read, called him the Lamb of God. In Matthew 21, Jesus went up for the feast of the Passover what, this is in the last moments of the days of his life. He told his disciples, "When he, to go fetch a donkey." They said, "Where are we going to get a donkey?" He told them, he "said This man, go to this man. He'll know what you're talking about." They brought him a donkey. Matthew 21 and verse six. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and he rode into the city. As he rode into the city, people were saying, "Who is this man?" And Matthew 21, 11 says, and the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. By the way, when he rode in, he went into the city on four feet. You missed that. A lamb has four feet. I submit to you, this was on the 10th day of the first month of their religious calendar. In fact, I submit to you it was on the exact day Daniel prophesied that he would be in their midst all the way back in the book of Daniel. In Matthew 21, 17 through 18, he left them, went out to the city of Bethany, and spent the night there. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. That's day 11. He rode in on day 10. What was the day that they were to select the lamb? Is on on day 10, the 10th day of the month. Here we have 11 is the next day. There is no change of days from that point in Matthew all the way up to chapter 26 and verse 2. It says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. That's day 12. That's day 13. Now their day began at six in the evening. So when you see when it became evening, that's the beginning of the next day. We've seen day ten, we've seen day eleven, we've seen day twelve, we've seen day thirteen. Matthew twenty-six twenty says, Now when evening came, that's the beginning of day fourteen. From six in the evening till six in the evening of the next day. It says, When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples and look what he says on the fourteenth day look what he says while they were eating Jesus took some bread and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said take eat this is my body take eat this is my body and when he had taken a cup and given thanks he gave it to them saying drink from it all of you for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Do you see it, how the, he was pictured in the Old Testament, all through their culture until the fullness of time, when Jesus came back into the world, or came into the world, he himself had created. He was examined for three days. Pilate himself said, I see no fault in this man. Hebrews seven twenty six. that's why it says, we just studied it, he was undefiled, nothing within him that could respond to sin, or he's innocent, he's undefiled, there was no sin outside of him. He was separate from sinners, in a class, all by himself. He's the perfect man, and this sacrifice for us to be in covenant with God required a perfect man who would shed perfect blood. That's why he's exalted above the heavens. The twilight, the 14th day, While just across the way, where you could actually see, they were sacrificing the Passover lambs without blemish. At the same time he was on the cross, when he cried out, It is finished. The door had been opened up. The way had been offered. God now had a way in which the people could get to him in a relationship. Afterwards, he told Thomas, Thomas, don't you get it? I am the way. My blood will protect you. My life will satisfy you. Just in the picture of Exodus chapter 12. Now look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. I just want you to see this, and we've left a lot out, but just see the pieces of a picture that's drawn for us. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. How do we enter by the blood of Jesus? By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Covenant is binding. That's why we ought to be accountable. It demands it. But covenant is costly. That's why we ought to be accountable. Accountability is no option to those who enter covenant with God through His Son. And you know, when you think about what it cost God and how He loves us, we ought to be accountable just because of what it cost Him. How many times we slap Him in the face by choosing to do it our way instead of doing it His way. You know, we could solve a lot of times of people in counseling situations if they would just get their heart back right with God. If they would just get out of their own self circle and get into his circle and say, God, I'm wrong. You know, most of the time in my life, hopefully it's getting better. I've stood in his way instead of walking in his will. I couldn't point a finger at anybody. I know the wickedness of my flesh. But the thing that brings me back, the things that want, wants to hold me accountable, it's not scary, being afraid of him. I know he loves me. It's this right here. And he says it in Romans chapter 2. He says, or do you not, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? You know, for us to walk in covenant, it doesn't take many brains to figure this out. If he's done this and continued to love us over and over and over and over again, that in itself demands accountability on our part. He says, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Not drives you, not drives you, not drags you, but leads you to repentance. When I recognized what God did for me, I remember the day it was no longer God so love the world, but it was God so loved Wayne. God so loved Wayne. And it just drove something in my heart. God, you know me. God, you love me. And that's what broke me. And that's what breaks me continuously in my life. Why I love you, son. Did you know that right now as a believer, you cannot do one thing to cause God to love you less, but you cannot do one thing to cause God to love you more. He just loves you. And because of that love, it should melt every defense we have. It should melt every ulterior motive that our flesh comes up with. It should melt every dissentive thought or word that we wanted to say. It should disarm us completely, bring us to our knees, And hold us accountable to say yes to Him. The problem is, covenant language has been lost a long time ago. Have you entered into covenant? Only His blood protects. And only His life satisfies. Only His blood protects you. And only His life satisfies you. Have you entered in the way? The way of death. Jesus is the way. He's the sacrifice. He offers you a way to walk into a newness of life. It's binding. No one can ever separate you once you're in covenant with him. But oh, is it costly. But just the fact of what it cost him ought to hold us accountable to say yes to him. He doesn't have a whip. He doesn't have a club. His arms are open wide, and He just simply says, enter in, enter in. As we saw in Ephesians, the same way we enter in, in Colossians, is the same way we continue to enter in, enter in. Steve Green sang that wonderful song, enter in, enter in. Boy, it's just blessed me ever since I first heard it. Are you living in light of the covenant that you're in with God, through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you're not, listen, run to Him. Don't run from Him. I'm going to ask you in a moment just to stand and bow your heads and maybe there's somebody here that's never bowed before Christ. I was in the ministry eight years before I ever bowed before Christ. I know how to play that game. And maybe you're here today and you're not in covenant with God and you know it. And God says, won't you come to me? Won't you come to me? Maybe there's somebody here that wants to join the church, and you don't know how to do that, listen, you just come up. We'll help you. But maybe you need to come to the altar and say, God, 2009 was a, a bomb. God, people saw me, but they don't, I don't think they saw you in me. And I want to be accountable in 2010 to say yes to you. What a difference. What a difference. Only the blood can protect you. Only his life can satisfy you. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.